Uh, We'll be reading from Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. If you have one of the church Bibles up the back, this passage can be found on page 1091. Starting verse 14. Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I have become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich. White clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed. And ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has ears to hear this listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Morning, Church at Nine. My name's Greg. I'm one of the ministers here at OEC, and it's my great pleasure and privilege to be opening God's Word with you. In your handouts, there's an outline of the talk. You can take notes there. You can see where we're going. Uh, Keep your Bibles open to that passage. That'd be great. I want to start by quoting um, a quote. Fancy that. Um, That's what you quote, isn't it? Uh, From a website called Fearless Motivation. Have a look at this one. I am where I am because of my decisions. If I want better results, I must take better actions. I will learn the lessons. I will see the blessings. I will not stop until my goals are realised. When I reach that goal, I will set a bigger goal. I will grow and grow and grow. I accept full responsibility for my results in life and I challenge myself to become better. Every year, every month, every week, every day, every moment. I am committed. I am determined. I am self-made. I'll tell you what, you don't need to go digging very far on the internet to find quotes like that. They're everywhere. Um, Oprah Winfrey um, shares many, many um, sentiments like this one. So here's a few. The big secret in life is that there's no big secret. Whatever your goal, you can get there if you're willing to work. Or this one. Think like a queen. A queen is not afraid to fail. Failure is another stepping stone to greatness. And there are so many more of those. And we, we love stories of people who have risen above adversity, who have overcome immense struggles and failure and oppression, stories like Madam C.J. Walker, uh, a poor Negro washerwoman living in the late 1800s who rose to become the first self-made 
Negro female millionaire selling and manufacturing cosmetics and hair care products for black women. And her amazing story of perseverance and determination and power was turned into a miniseries called Self Made. And if you haven't watched it, it really is worth a watch. It's a great series. Here's just one quote from the, from the, um, from the miniseries. We have got to work harder, be smarter and dream big. We're all going to die. I can't control that, but I can control how I'm remembered and what I leave behind. Control, power, independence, autonomy, the power of self. We live in a world that celebrates these things. But while this emphasis on personal power and independence encourages dreams and responsibility, which is good, there's one thing it gets terribly wrong. That is, we're not self-made. We are God-made, made by Jesus, made for him. And this foundational mistake is, has important ramifications. But this mistake isn't just a modern one. It's the same mistake that the church in Laodicea made. We're kidding ourselves if you think we're not influenced by the self-made culture we live in. And so we would do well to listen to this letter to the church in Laodicea. Listen with hearts willing to be rebuked, with lives that are willing to be changed drastically, if need be. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this hard word to the church in Laodicea. We thank you that we can read it now. And we pray that as we reflect on it, that you would help us to listen well, ready to change, ready to live wholeheartedly for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been with us for the last three weeks, we've been working our way through these letter, letters to the churches in Revelation chapter 3. And I'm sure you're already familiar, if you have been here, with the, with the, um, uh, with the pattern in each of these letters. It starts with a reminder of the person who's writing the letter, Jesus himself, and then a word of encouragement, then a word of warning, then a command, and then fin- finally a reminder to listen. And so this letter to Laodicea begins with a reminder of Jesus that as the other ones do, take us back to Revelation chapter 1 and the vision of Jesus that we see there. Have a look at the Jesus we meet in chapter 3, verse 14. Thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. Now, as always, these descriptions of Jesus in the beginning of these letters are pointed descriptions. There's a sharp contrast between the character of Jesus we see here and the character of the Christians in Laodicea. Jesus is the faithful witness, but they have been faithless. Jesus is the one who testifies to the truth, but they have fallen for the lies and deceptions of the world. But the biggest pointed description of Jesus that we see in this verse is something that captures what the later scenes really need to work hard at understanding again, and that is Jesus, the originator of God's creation. The word originator in this verse is the same word for beginning. Jesus, the beginning of creation. He's what creation is all about. He's the origin and the purpose of everything that has been made. And life without reference to Jesus is to get life completely wrong. In Revelation chapter 1, Jesus is introduced as the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's in chapter 1, um, verse 5. But this phrase that we see in 1 verse 5, but also in 3 verse 14, 
also should remind us of an early Christian hymn, a hymn we can read in the first chapter of Colossians. Now, Colossae was actually just 17 k's away from Laodicea, just further to the southeast. And when Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians, he also wrote a letter to the Laodiceans as well and said, listen, read each other's letters when you do. And so this early hymn that was written to the church in Colossae is something that the Laodiceans would have been very familiar with. Have a look at the Jesus we meet in Colossians 1 in this early hymn. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. I think this unpacks what it means that Jesus is the beginning of creation. Everything created by him, everything created for him, and that's what the Laodiceans have forgotten. But before we come to what Jesus has against the Christians in Laodicea, what do we learn about what life was like for these first century Christians in this city? Well, Laodicea was 80 kilometres southeast of Philadelphia, the church we looked at last week, on a major trade route. It was just 17 kilometres, as I said, from Colossae. Now, when I researched these cities, I'm so used to hearing there was agricultural land around them that was really plentiful and they're on a trade route, so they were, they were wealthy. It seems like all the cities were a bit like that, um, and that's probably why those cities existed. But Laodicea was actually next-level prosperous. It had been des- it's been described as one of the richest commercial centres in the Roman world, dripping with money. They had a flourishing banking industry, clothing manufacturing centre, and a renowned school of medicine. And like other towns in the region, they also suffered from earthquakes including one that caused extensive damage in AD 60. But unlike the towns around them, they refused outside help. They preferred instead to rebuild and fund the projects for themselves. So first century Roman historian Tacitus said this about the city. Without any relief from us, the city recovered itself by its own resources. And it's this self-reliance is what the city was proud about. And it's this pride and self-reliance that is echoed in the church that meets in its walls. So after the reminder of the person writing the letter, Jesus, the introduction to Jesus in verse 14, what normally comes is an encouragement to the church. A word from Jesus about how the church has been struggling but persevering. Uh, not not giving in to the lies of false teachers and things like that. But the letter to the, but like the letter to the Church of Sardis that we read two weeks ago, Jesus has no encouragement for the church in Laodicea. Not a positive word to say. Verse fifteen, I know your works that you are neither hot nor cold. Now it's not that Jesus hates this church. No, he loves this church. And you can see that in verse 19. So have a look at verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. This is a hard letter from Jesus to this church. To a church in desperate need of a wake-up call. It's written in love to discipline and correct. And these letters from Jesus don't get any more cutting than this one here to the Laodiceans. The church in Laodicea is a church full of self-confident fools who fail to see the danger they're in. So let's have a look at the cutting rebuke 
the warning by King Jesus. Verse 15, I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were hot or cold. Because, so because you were lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. It's a very visceral reaction to this church, isn't it, that Jesus has. It's a bit like when a coffee snob accidentally puts international roast in their mouth. They just want to spit it out. Or when someone presents me a whole cooked eggplant to eat. I just, I just can't, okay? In fact, in Hierapolis, uh, just 10Ks to the north, there were hot springs. I, I, I think it probably should be called lukewarm springs. You know, nice and warm for a dip, but try and drink it. If, if the lukewarm nature of the uh, water didn't make you want to gag, then the high mineral content of the spring would certainly make you want to chuck. And that's exactly how Jesus feels about this church. Jesus even says he wishes that they were neither hot, as they were either hot or cold, that they were either for him or against him. That's a really strong thing to say, isn't it? To be outright against Jesus would be better, he's saying, than the lukewarm Christianity of the people in this church. So, what makes outright opposition to Jesus preferable to half-hearted Christianity? Well, at least those who are claiming to not love Jesus, are being genuine. They're consistent with their claim, aren't they? They don't claim before him, they are against him, and they own it. There's a consistency in that, that is different to the Laodiceans, who claim to be for him, but in practice, aren't. And they're indifferent to his words and commands. So what is, exactly is it about the Laodicean church that makes Jesus react like this? You can see it in verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy and need nothing, and you don't realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. Their works are lukewarm because their attitude to the things of this world is actually the thing that shapes them. It's their hope, their confidence, their joy, their comfort. It's in their bank balance. It's in their super fund. It's in their nice house, their two chariots, and their comfortable lifestyle. That's actually what shapes the decisions that they make, the lives that they lead. If you go back to the letter to the church in Smyrna, chapter 2, verse 9, Jesus said this to the church in Smyrna, I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. So the church in Smyrna was poor in the way that the world would measure it, but in Jesus' eyes, they were rich. They knew the blessing of being called children of God. They were willing to suffer, even if that meant loss of work and loss of money and loss of property, which it often did in those days. But the church in Laodicea was rich in the way that the world would measure it, but in Jesus' eyes, they were poor, wretched, pitiful, blind, naked. They had nothing worth having. They were blind to the desperate poverty of their faith. They went to church. They had each other over for meals. They celebrated the Lord's Supper together. They went through the motions. They sang the songs with gusto, but their hearts were captured by riches. In a city known for self-sufficiency and riches and power, they swallowed the lies and deceptions of their culture and they lived in a self-made city and they were self-made people. 
They'd forgotten that everything they had was given by Jesus. Jesus, the beginning of creation. Jesus, the purpose of creation. Without Jesus, they could have the whole world, yet have nothing. And this is how desperately poor the church in Laodicea really was. But their riches, their comfort, their pretend faith blinded them to the shocking reality of what Jesus saw. And they were self-deceived. They failed to see that they've turned their back on Jesus and their faith is empty. They think they love and serve Jesus, but they really love and serve the power of their wealth and the comfort and security that it brings. Jesus said these words in Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters since either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. He can't serve both God and money. Whenever you try and serve God and something else, what always happens is that something else comes first. Because only God is worthy of your worship. Only God is worthy of your devotion and service. And so Jesus confronts the church in Laodicea with this reality, with their desperate poverty, the emptiness of their faith. And he asked them, verse 18, have a look at it. He asked them to come to him again. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich. White clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not exposed. An ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. Jesus is the only one who can give us what we so desperately need, true riches that won't be taken away by suffering, by misfortune, by death. The riches of the blessing of being called the children of God, inheritors of heaven. He can give us clothes that are pure and clean, unstained by the sin of, and of greed and self, self-reliance and our world in rebellion against God. Clothes that will cover their sin and their naked shame before God Clothes that only come from being forgiven by Jesus. And salve for their eyes so that they can truly see the way things that Jesus does and see the emptiness of riches and the insecurity of wealth and their desperate need for Jesus and what only he can give. We live in this culture that is self-made. We build our own lives, we make our own way and we're answerable to no one. That's how our world thinks. But the truth is we're in desperate need of true clothes that cover our shame, of true riches and of eyes that can see that what we have here doesn't cut it in the face of death, won't last in the crucible of suffering and won't stand when we come to face our maker. So if, you, if you're here this morning and you don't yet trust in Jesus, it is so great to have you with us. Let me encourage you to continue to come and continue to investigate Jesus and who he is and what he's done. Let me encourage you to look beyond the surface glitter and power and the lie of self-sufficiency that we're sold by our world. Consider your sin, your desperate need for forgiveness by your God. You were made by him to serve him and love him. He's your beginning. You will face him as your judge. Don't think that you can face him with your self-confidence and indifference to him and think it'll be okay. Come to him. See your desperate need of what only he can give. He died for you. He defeated death for you. Don't sell yourself short 
by living for what you have here. Because it won't last. Find true meaning and relationship with the God who made you. For those of us who do trust in Jesus, there's a strong command for us, as there was for the Laodicean church. The church in Laodicea had swallowed the lies of their culture and let the things of their world fill their vision and hope and their dreams. Their confidence was in what they had. Their security was in what they owned. And our culture is no different. So what did Jesus command them to do? Have a look at the second half of verse 19 where it says, Be zealous and repent. Be zealous. These days, um, when someone is zealous, it's seen as a bad thing, isn't it? It's unbalanced. Extreme. Someone who takes things too far. That's not measured in their approach and devotion. You can believe what you like, just don't go overboard. That's the sort of thing that you hear. Everything in moderation, nothing in the extreme. But that fails to recognise who Jesus is, doesn't it? And who we are. Jesus is the beginning of creation. He's the reason for it all. We were made for him to worship him, to honour him with all our mind and heart and soul and strength. And the Bible is full of words that help us appreciate that following Jesus, you can't do it half-heartedly. Jesus asks us to lay down our life, to take up our cross. Paul describes himself as counting Everything as lost compared to knowing Christ. Have a look at this passage, Romans chapter 12, as it describes the Christian life as one of zeal and devotion. Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Take the lead in honouring one another. Do not lack lack diligence in zeal, be fervent in the spirit, serve the Lord. To follow Jesus is an all of life thing. Zeal is the right word to use. We should not be half-hearted, distracted in our following of Jesus. You can't go overboard in worshipping him. And our worship of God involves all of our life. It's a call to radical repentance and zealous devotion. And so he calls on the church in Laodicea to repent. Two weeks ago, we were looking at the church in Sardis, and we saw that repentance is not about feeling bad for our sin. Repentance is realising you're going the wrong way, turning around 180 degrees, and not going back there again. That's what repentance is. So put yourselves in the sandals of those first century Christians in Laodicea, whose works are offensive to Jesus, whose faith has been compared, corrupted sorry, by the life of riches and plenty, by their self-made lives. And they received this rocket from Jesus. What would genuine repentance have looked like for them? What would their neighbours notice if they took this warning to heart? What would zealous obedience to Jesus look like for them? Well, if they no longer trust their riches, if they saw the reality of their desperate spiritual poverty, surely they would give more away. You'd see them generously give for the gospel, generously give to the needy. It would hit their bank balance, wouldn't it? Without a doubt. 
We kid ourselves if we think that our self-made culture doesn't impact on us. What will, what will we do to make sure that our faith doesn't become insipid and lukewarm? Just acceptable rather than zealous. Have a look at verse 20. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. This is an invitation of Jesus to take his word seriously, to turn around and to let him change your life. To turn our back on our riches and instead trust him. And have a look at the radical reversal in the way that Jesus responds to the people who do listen, who do repent. Before their faith made him want to vomit, but now he invites them to eat with him. It's a radical reversal, isn't it? It's a picture of a heavenly banquet, a picture that Jesus often uses to paint what heaven will be like. It's a wonderful picture of a great banquet where we meet God face to face and we eat with him and drink with him and celebrate with him. We sit down with God, share a meal that he's been longing to share with us since the day he spun the stars into motion. And then this letter ends, like all of them do, with these words. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Over this series, we've seen how hard it has been for the early church to persevere in their faith. Through disappointments, through persecution, through threats through persecution where some of them died. The temptation to live for the things that their cities live for. The constant threat of false teaching that threatened to disqualify them from the prize. It was hard to stay a Christian back then. And it's hard to stay a Christian now too. Persevering as a Christian will always be difficult. So how do we ensure that we make it to the end and hear our Saviour say, well done, good and faithful servant, welcome home. How do we make sure we make it to the end? We listen. That's been the overarching message of these, all of these letters. We listen with humble hearts, ready to be rebuked and changed, ready to learn more of what it means to be zealously following our Lord and Saviour and Creator. Listen and obey. Listen and trust. Listen and repent. Let's pray we would do that. Father, we want to thank you for the way that you have blessed us in so many ways. But Father, forgive us for the ways that we let the, the blessings that you've given us, the physical blessings that you've given us, distract us and sometimes take our devotion, the devotion that you alone deserve. Father, help us to zealously repent and obey. Help us to listen. We pray that you would keep us faithful to you to the very end. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.